Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 194. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. It is a mighty musical podcast this time around. As we talk to a couple of guys who have been making music for a long, long time and still sounding as good as ever. A little bit later on, Russell Hitchcock, one half of the best-selling band Air Supply, will visit with us and talk about their more than 45 years of recording together and their upcoming tour, which will bring them here to the state of Maine. Up first, though, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the most influential and best groups of the 1960s, the Rascals, that charted numerous hits, including... Three number one songs. He was often the lead singer, songwriter, and playing that Hammond B3 organ like nobody's business. Our conversation with the great Felix Cavalieri here on Downtown. Felix, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Can't wait to read the memoir. What uh, What did you learn from spending that time going back over a life in music? Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, uh, the situation started uh, in 2013. We did a, a we meeting the old group. The old rascals group, not the young rascals group. The old rascals. Group. <laughs> uh, we did we did a Broadway show uh, right. called Once Upon a Dream, which is uh, you know the music of uh, of of the, uh, our group in those days, and uh, we did press conferences. And I noticed at the press conference that every single one of us had a different answer for the same question. <laughs> so I said, you know. This is like, uh, you know, you tell someone a joke, and then the next thing you know, it's a different joke. It's got a different ending. So I said, well, it might be a good idea for me to write down who really won, you know, Custer's last stand, you know? So, (laughs) you know, I I realized that the last person standing and tells the story doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened. So from my perspective, from my point of view, I decided to write something. And, uh, you know, then it, it kind of evolved into, uh, you know, uh, from Pelham, which is where I grew up, Pelham, New York, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and I decided not to do it so much about, you know, the rascals, but about me. Well, let's talk about you. Uh, your love of music started young. It was, was it your mom who trained you on classical music? Well, she certainly inspired me to, to learn. Uh, she, uh, she and my dad enrolled me in a pretty serious school uh, uh, three times a week from the age of five, you know, uh, because uh, I think basically they saw some talent, and uh, I know that she would have liked me to uh, uh, pursue a classical music career. Uh, however, that's not what happened, but at least I got the musical training to pursue a musical career. And uh, you started playing very young, and then uh, you you had what proved to be, I think, a very fateful meeting with the Hammond organ. Uh, can you can you remember what it was like going into Macy's and seeing a whole room full of those things? Yeah, it was quite a. a you know, the first place that I had seen and heard was in this club uh, up in New Rochelle. Uh, I heard a trio. Uh, and, uh, basically the, the organist was playing like the bass and he was playing the rhythm and he was singing and he was playing solos. And, uh, there was a, just two other instruments, a drum and a sax. And I said, wow, it's, it's kind of like the grandfather of all these instruments. I've got to learn it. 
And then, you know, to try to pursue where to find one, uh, the closest to me was down in uh, New York City on uh, 34th Street, which is uh, Macy's. Now, you, uh, as a young man, headed off to Syracuse. And you, were you studying medicine? Is, was that the plan at the time? That was the plan, yes. I come from a family that uh, basically was all versed in uh, some form of uh, medical uh, careers. And I, I was pretty much expected to follow suit, you know. Uh, while you were there, you formed your own band, uh, The Escorts. And how did you end up getting together with Joey D and the Starlighters? Uh, the summer uh, of uh, my junior year, I was asked to, uh, well, we, we got an offer to play in the Catskill Mountains at the Raleigh Hotel. During that, uh, during that tenure of the summer, Joey D and the Starlighters who had, you know, had quite a successful uh, record career up to that point, uh, came to the hotel to perform and saw me. And uh, pretty much the, the next thing that happened is that they went off to Europe and their organist quit during that trip, that tour. So they contacted me to go over and join them, which I did. Instead of going back to college, I went uh, over to Germany. And where the real good luck came in is that uh, they had this group opening up for them called <laughs> the Beatles. Right. Now you uh, I got to see firsthand, you know, what that was all about. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And you decided you know, things were going well with the Starlighters, but you decided you wanted your own band. But I, and I, I've seen you say in interviews before, you wanted the best musicians around for your band. And you found them well right there at the Choo Choo Club, right? No, no, I found them in New York City, yeah. No, the Choo Choo Club was, was where we first uh, uh, started working. But, no, uh, New York City, uh, uh, you know, is a much bigger venue, much bigger, uh, you know, uh, um, pool of musicians than, than uh, Garfield, New Jersey will ever be. So I found, I found everybody that was in the band in New York. Uh, you guys ended up uh, taking New York by storm. You got signed by Atlantic Records. Uh, Sid Bernstein got you, uh, at the time was a great deal, giving you some artistic freedom that most groups didn't have. But also, how important was it to all of you guys to be on Atlantic Records and all that represented? Well, uh, three quarters of my record collection was Atlantic Records. <laughs> uh, and so I was really thrilled uh just just thrilled to be part of that organization uh, i i cannot praise them enough for the opportunity that they gave me and us to as you said control uh, artistically what you were doing and to uh, you know sort of like give you a laboratory where you could uh, hone your craft I, I really uh i really appreciate it always they're uh, they're allowing us to do that we're talking with Felix Cavallari here on Downtown. His book, Memoir of a Rascal, coming out soon. You can pre-order it. Autographed copies. We'll tell you all how to do that a little bit later on. I, I always thought of you guys, Felix, as the quintessential New York band because you took everything that was happening in New York, all those different sounds, and put them together to create something new. Yeah, well, New York is a great place for music. It still is, you know, uh, I mean, club-wise and jazz-wise and folk-wise. Our friends, the Loving Spoonful, you know, they, they took care of the folk side of it. And, you know, th there was plenty to go around in New York. Great radio stations. And, um, 
you know, uh, it, 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 it's a place where, you know, the song goes, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And again, uh, I, I, I've always appreciated the loyalty that the New York uh, and, and tri- metropolitan area has, has provided us all these years later. Now, who was it? Was it you who found uh, the shirts that you used that became uh, the official outfit of the Young Rascals? <laughs> no, uh, basically the story, there's this one of those stories that was, uh, you know, changed from person to person. <laughs> it, in, those, in those days, you, you, you were obligated to wear a jacket and a tie uh, at the clubs because the audience uh, was 21 and over in those days. And first of all, we wanted to get out of those suits. And second of all, uh, we were looking for a way to be seen. And my recollection is that Dino came up with this idea, you know, the drummer, Dino Donelli. Uh, however, the, the initial uh, outfits, the owner still said you got to wear a tie. And so it kind of almost defeated the purpose, but not quite. We still didn't need the jackets, but we had to have a tie on it. Uh, the first single it did well, got some airplay, uh, certainly in New York and around the country. Ain't going to eat my heart out anymore. But that, that second single, uh, a song that I think had been released by the Olympics, but you guys made good love and completely your own. Yeah, that was a, a, a song that we did uh, live and uh, in, in, in the clubs prior to us getting a record deal. And that is a song that only to this day, Brings people out of their seats to dance, so it's a it's a it's a good good one for us. And you were doing on that first album uh, some covers, but by the second album, you and Eddie had really gotten into a great groove as songwriters as well. Well, that's what the uh, uh, our contemporaries were doing. I mean, uh, Beatles and Stones and uh, Spoonful and Birds. I mean, for the most part, uh, Bob Dylan. Everybody was writing, you know, and so uh, gave it a try and got pretty lucky. Uh, and a tremendous run of hits. Now, I, I love all the Rascals music. I don't think anybody was making better music uh, than you guys were in the late 1960s. But I think my my favorite Rascals song is uh, one that was a top 10 for you in 67, A Girl Like You. Excellent. Well, uh, if you remember in those years, we had uh, uh, two groups uh, with horns. We had Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And of course, there was Tower of Power and others. But uh, so having the availability, being on Atlantic Records with this magnificently talented man who was helping out with the producing and the arranging named Arif Bardeen, we were able to do horns and do strings and do whatever we wanted as long as we kept making hits. And that's how that song came about. Well, I love that song uh, so much. I bought another great one. Uh, went to number one for you. People got to be free. What was what was the inspiration for that? Obviously, there was a lot going on in America at that time. Uh, what inspired you guys to turn that into such a powerful musical statement? Well, I was uh, uh, working uh, uh, for Robert Kennedy's uh, campaign for president. And um, I was actually seeing a young lady who was present at that horrible assassination in that hotel out in California. Mm. And I just uh, felt, I just felt compelled to make a statement, you know, to say something to kind of like, just let everyone know who was interested in that, you know, that was really a, a, a major moment in our history 
we lost something that we'll never know the uh, the, the the answer to what would have happened if. So it was a, it was a, a major major like grieving kind of plea to uh, please pay attention to this. This is the United States of America, and uh, just like the rest of the world, people got to be free. Well, was there some hesitancy on the part of uh, Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler to release that as a single? Yeah, there was. Uh, basically, uh, you know, there was a, a kind of like a, a hesitation to get involved. And I said, get involved in what? Life? Uh, we're already involved in life, you know. Yeah, they, they, they uh, don't like record companies exist for one purpose. And, and you know, that that's, that's understood, of course. It's to make money, to sell records, to sell products, and to promote their artists. They they had a uh, they had an opinion that um, it would it would it would have been detrimental. Uh, today I'll tell you what it certainly would be detrimental because you'd, you'd alienate half the half the United States of America, you know. But in our day, I really felt we were the majority uh, uh, opinion at that time. Now I may be wrong, you know, but uh, that's what was my feeling. And and that song became number one in every oppressed country in the world and i'm talking about at that time hong kong it was called the union of south africa berlin was still having had a wall that was number one all over the world we're talking with felix cavallari here on downtown in in retrospect as you look back now on uh, when the group dissolved obviously those things have a lot of complex reasons behind them. What do you think brought the end of the Rascals? Well, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's really a simple equation. Uh, one of the members decided to leave. And, um, you know, uh, it's kind of like uh, if you have a vehicle and one of the tires decides, well, I'm not, I'm not going to turn. I'm just going to leave. Well, you got three out of four. It's not going to work. It's not going to go. Tried, tried to keep it going with other other members, but there's a certain magic to uh, you know a, a group, not just us, but every group that has ever you know become successful has has had that magic. So when Eddie uh, decided to leave, uh, it really put a dent in our uh, uh, continuing career, and it's a shame because I think we had plenty of career left. Well, there's no question about that. Now, you went on to make some terrific solo music. I remember as a, as a young radio guy, when my hair was a different color, uh, playing right out of the box, <laughs> Only a Lonely Heart Sees. I thought that was a terrific song. Well, thank you. You know, I was, uh, you know, uh, most of the people who, you know, I consider, you know, my peers, you know, the, the old timers, the oldies but goodies, we all love to make music, man. I, I mean, like I say, we're very fortunate to, you know, still be making music 50 or 60 years after we started. Everyone that I know that from those days would never stop unless, uh, unfortunately, they could. And so I never I never stopped. I, I always wanted to uh, continue to create. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee for that sole purpose of continuing in the uh, uh, music business as a writer, as a producer, and, and as a performer. Well, the Rascal story wasn't over yet. Uh, you guys got back together uh, for the induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What was that moment like for you? Well, it was a mixed moment. You know, it was a mixed. Uh, 
you know, you, you like to see uh, uh, an occasion like that uh, be really uh, uh, happy. And uh, I don't think everybody in the in the band was happy, you know, which is a shame. You know, I know I was. I was thrilled. And I had my family there. I had my kids there. And I had some dear friends that attended from uh, uh, an airlines that I was working for at the time, uh, Northwest Airlines, and they bought tables. And it was a really fun event. However, there was a lot of kind of like cross currents that if somebody were to take the time to look at the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, speeches, you could kind of tell where everybody was at, you know, in terms of in, in the group. However, it's the last time I was able to see all the Bee Gees, Michael Jackson, uh, a, a lot of the people are no longer with us that were on that stage, and, and that, that was a great night. Yeah, you people, it's funny, music fans, I, I think, in their heads, they want everybody to, to get along and, and be the way they were, but, but people are people, and uh, the relationships, the partnerships that you have when you're in your 20s, they change over time, and it's always uh, pretty hard to go back again, but, but you guys uh, rallied, and as you mentioned, the Broadway show, Once Upon a Dream, how was that experience? Uh, that was fun. You know, uh, first of all, it, uh, it, it's something that I always wanted to do. Uh, it was Broadway show. It was not the Broadway show that I wanted to do, but it was a Broadway show. And so we got a chance to do that in front of, like, uh, you know, a lot of people flew from all over the world to that show. It was two weeks, two and a half weeks at the, uh, 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 at the theater. And that's also the theater where, um, you know, uh, Oklahoma and South Pacific, and so it was. Uh, it was really a, a, a. It was like an honor to be there and, and to work there, and uh, we all got along. Everything was fine, you know, and uh, it just ended uh, because, frankly, uh, it, 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 the, to, I wish we had stayed on Broadway. But if we took when we took it on the road, it was. Uh, it was not. It was not a. Uh, how should I put it? Profitable tour mm. because of the fact it was too big to take out. Well, uh, you're going back out on the road and uh, very excited to hear this. You'll be touring with friend of our show, Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees, on a big yeah. Legends Live tour. Uh, man, that's going to be a great bill. I think so because, you know, he, he's he's a, a fun guy and the music that the Monkees did was so positive and uplifting. And, and so was ours. Our, our music was up. And so I think, you know, post-pandemic, which I'm really hoping is... is is the case. I think people really want to enjoy themselves, smile, laugh, remember, and kind of communicate and commune, uh, which is what we all did in the 60s. You know, we communicated through music. So I'm looking forward to it. Mickey, Mickey's a really funny guy, man, and we're looking forward to it. Well, and you and Mickey both sound great. What, what have you done to, to keep that instrument sounding so good? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, if you take care of yourself, you've got a chance of, of doing that. Take really good care of you. Look, look at Tom Brady. I mean, you know, Tom is, <laughs> is a perfect example of somebody who decided, I'm going to take care of myself, not only when I'm on field, not only in season, but off season. And look, he's still going. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and that, that's the secret to life. You know, if you, if you take care of your, your engine, your car, it, it works. Uh, the autobiography, Memoir of a Rascal, is coming out officially on March 22nd, but you can uh, 
get a pre-sale right now, all autographed, and you just go to Felix's website at felixcavalrymusic.com and get yourself a, a copy of this book. I, I can't wait to read You know, we had Gene Cornish on about a year and a half ago talking about his book, and I, I was struck by the fact that you know, one of the last things he said to us was uh, talking about you writing the foreword for his book, and he said, look, we've we've had our ups and downs all of us through the years, but but Felix was and will always be my brother. Well, that's very nice, you know, because I, I feel exactly the same way. It's just unfortunate, as you said earlier, because, you know, a lot of marriages, a lot of partnerships and a lot of associations, they just, uh, they just end in uh, stupidity, you know, and that's the only word I can say. There, there, there was never any uh, event that took place that warranted ill feelings. You know, uh, there was never any kind of uh, uh, cheating, lying, stealing, uh, taking somebody's. Uh, there was no alcohol, drugs that it caused it caused these difficulties. It just was uh, a shame. So I, I appreciate that. Well, your music still brings smiles to everybody's faces. I I pulled out my old uh, copy, my vinyl copy of Timepiece, the greatest hits album. And uh, man, that thing is worn down to a nub. I, I played that a lot through the years, but uh, still love the music. You're sounding great. I hope we get a chance to see you out on the tour. And I, I so look forward to reading Memoir of a Rascal. Felix, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, I look forward to seeing you and everybody out there. You know, God willing. Felix Cavalieri, the new memoir uh, available for pre-sale right now, Memoir of a Rascal. Get your hands on an autographed copy of that by going to Felix's website at felixcavalierimusic.com. We'll take a break for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we return, Russell Hitchcock, one half of Air Supply here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Many huge hits for Air Supply. Band made up of Graham Russell and our next guest, Russell Hitchcock. They've been together since 1975, still making music and out on tour right now. Here's Russell Hitchcock of Air Supply on Downtown. Let's talk about uh, what's been an amazing career for, for you and Graham. Everybody's got those dates in, they li in their life that they remember, but I know one of the big ones for you is May 12th, 1975. Correct, yeah, that's the day I met uh, Graham. Uh, we were both in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in Australia, and uh, we were actually placed together at several instances during rehearsals, so we got to know each other pretty quickly. But uh, it was only about two weeks after we first met that we started to work on some of Graham's 
material and uh you know we we thought we sounded pretty good singing together and uh i'd never heard anybody that had written their own stuff before so that was a real fascination for me and uh, you know we just clicked and as they say the rest is history <laughs> I mean, well indeed it is now the name air supply was that you or graham who had that come to them in a dream uh yeah graham that we we were actually looking we recorded a, a single with a record company <clears throat> in australia and uh we didn't have a name for the band so we had to make a decision pretty quickly and uh, we both said to each other he thinks of the best thing as quickly as possible we'll use so he came in to rehearsal the following day and he said i had a dream last night that i saw this billboard with lights around it and air supply was in the middle of the billboard so i said sounds good to me and uh <laughs> Um, air is a um, Gemini is an air sign. We're both Gemini, so it kind of it was a bit cosmic. But uh, we thought we'd stick with it, and it's certainly done us some great service over the years. Well, indeed, it has. Uh, Rod Stewart reached out to you guys. You ended up opening for him on a tour. What was that experience like? Well, if you consider that uh, when we got the invitation to first of all play with him in Australia, we'd only been uh, a band for two months. Um, and then after the second show in Australia with him, uh, he asked us to come to the US. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if anybody can imagine that. The, uh, you know, shock and what's going on here because, I mean, I'd never been in a band before that was professional. Um, and to be in the spotlight to, to the degree that we were, of course, we were the opening act and nobody had heard of us. But to play 50, I think we played 50 or 60 dates with him all over North America including places that, you know, you dreamt about, Madison Square Garden, uh, all the major baseball parks. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. And, of course, we uh, we weren't young when we started the band, as young as, you know, a lot of the kids are that, that begin in music. So we we took every opportunity to, to watch every show that, that he performed. Um, we learned about stagecraft and relating to audiences we learned about lighting and sound and uh the business business side of the of the business um it was quite an education for us though um it was invaluable and, and uh you know he was so kind in first of all letting us go on tour with him but he was very uh very kind to us you know we didn't get to hang out with him very often but when we did he's i mean he was he is a gentleman and, and treated us like uh not quite equals but, <laughs> but as close as you could what, what's the key to that? Because on, when I watch recent uh, live performances, you guys, uh, you have that ability, Rod Stewart did, the best all do, to perform in front of a huge arena, uh, stadium, uh, concert hall, hundreds, thousands of people, but make everybody feel like you're singing just to them. Well, you know, I think the music has a lot to do with that um, because it is so personal. I mean, everybody that comes to speak to us at any time um, always has a story about a song. Um, but, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar taught us uh, discipline and focus and, uh, you know, those things that you really need when you're on stage. Watching Rod um, it taught us how to relate to an audience if they weren't you know, feeling the way you wanted them to. Uh, and it happens, you know, sometimes you go out because, you know, after a few, well, not, not a few years, after quite a few years, you, you get kind of used to getting the, the, the response, you know, and, and when it doesn't happen sometimes, um, you know, Graham and I go, oh, what's going on here, you know? Uh, 
um, but it's nothing. It's it's our it's our job um, to to make the audience respond, not the other way around. Mm. And um, um, for me personally, I usually when we go on stage because I can only see you know so many rows back. Um, I typically focus on you know two or three people and and, and but I make eye con eye contact with as many as I can. I think that's a big thing. Um, and that kind of uh, intimate thing d- during a stage show, it seems to spread around those people and you know eventually to, e- to everybody. I mean, I just recently saw a, a band um, that I've been a, f- a fan of forever, and uh, they sounded amazing, but they did nothing to generate any kind of uh, experience with an audience. And I find that. Um, you know, it's just not what we do. It's not our thing. I mean, before the pandemic, we used to go into the into the audience um, for one of our songs, uh, and we we were doing that for thirty years plus before the pandemic shut that down. So to even have that advantage to go in and be able to physically touch people and and see the expressions on their faces up close and all that stuff, we've always worked at that. I've said to the, you know whatever incarnation of the band there is. And I still do it to this day. I mean, if we play a place that's, you know, multi-level balconies and there are people kind of, you know, up in the rooftops, I always tell the guys, don't forget that there's not the audience just in front of you. They're to the sides, they're up the top, they're way in the back. So make sure that you gesture or do something to make them feel included. I think that's really important. And, you know, at this point, it's not, well, we have to do that. Um, I love doing it. I love to get as many people involved in the show as I can. We're talking with Russell Hitchcock of Air Supply here on downtown. Well, you guys recorded Lost in Love, I think in uh, 77, early 78. It was a big hit on Australia. And then it came to the attention of Clive Davis, who reached out and offered you a contract. And then uh, you became absolute international sensations. Can anybody be prepared for that level of success and attention? Well, you can't um, because, you know, once again, when we first got off at the Rod Stewart tour in North America, we didn't have a clue. And when we had the success with Lost in Love on a, on a worldwide basis, um, it was overwhelming. And the fact that we had, you know, another four or five songs be nearly as successful and all in the top five in America we quite frankly didn't have time to stop and realize what was going on because it was, you know, we'd tour from um, February till December and then we'd go back to Australia in those early days and record an album and then come back and tour again. So we didn't have time to stop and smell the roses and I think probably that was a good thing because it, um, you know, we never got big-headed about it. We just, and we never took it for granted. We were thrilled when we got... In those days, you'd get the chart results every week and see where you were and, um, you know, what the sales were and stuff like that. And, and once again, because we weren't teenagers when we started, I think we were very level-headed when we got into the business and and took that, the successes, you know, and we still say today, you know, we, we, we still have to work as hard as we did, if not more than we did in the early days because it's not easy to, to achieve success, but it's way, way more difficult to, to sustain it. We've had a great run, seven straight top five singles. One of my favorite Air Supply songs was a Jim Steinman tune, uh, Making Love Out of Nothing at All. Now, we think of a Jim who, who passed away within the last year, his great collaboration with Meatloaf. But, gosh, that song seemed like it was written specifically 
for your voice. What a wonderful match that was. Well, it was, I mean, it is a fantastic song. You know, we've ever since we, the song was first released, uh, we, it's never been out of the show. Um, we met Jim in New York. Uh, we, we actually, our manager at the time was Don Arden, who managed uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath and Electric Load Orchestra. Very, very famous guy in the business. And uh, he said, we should do a greatest hits record. And, you know, we, we said, you're out of your mind. We've been, we've had two albums, <laughs> you know, and he said, no, no, no. He said, I know what we're doing. We've got to, we have the package for the, for the songs that we want to put in it. Plus um, we have an offer to do a Jim Steinman song. And I, obviously we'd heard of him. So we went to New York to meet him and uh, I found him to be very eccentric um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but, you know, he said, here's the song. And it, I think it was, you know, maybe twice as long as the recorded version. And, you know, everybody said, it's too long, Jim. You can't, you know, it's not a meatloaf album. It's, it's, this is supposed to be a, a radio friendly song. So he, uh, I think he went back and did his thing. And the version that was recorded and, and uh, put out was, was the one that you hear now. Great song. Uh, and we also had the pleasure to work with, some of Bruce Springsteen's band recording the track was Roy Bitten on piano and Max Weinberg on drums. Um, I think Rick Derringer played the guitar solo. I say they're all very heavy hitters, and that was, you know, awe-inspiring to be in the same studio as those guys. And obviously the song was a tremendous success, and God bless Jim, and, uh, you know, he's done some great work, and his legacy is beyond, uh, you know, reproach. Everybody's got their fans, but it seems like fans of Air Supply are especially loyal. Can you talk a little bit about the people you guys lovingly refer to as the Airheads? Right. Well, you know that's that's really is a loving thing, and they all, uh, you know, embrace that that term. They're proud to be Airheads. Um, we've always found it very important to to have a great relationship with, with the fans because, you know, it's cliched, but you know, if you don't have fans, you don't have a career. Um, and we've done our best always to accommodate them as best we can. Um, I don't think in my career I've turned down a, an autograph or a photograph more than once or twice. I mean, if people are rude to me, then I don't do that. But most of them, obviously, because they're, they're air supply fans and they love us, they're very um, respectful of our time and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, we're having a, a genuine connection with them all. And uh, I think we have, you know, over three and a half million followers on, on Facebook. How much of a thrill, the world. speaking of fans, how much of a thrill was it to not only play for a Prince Charles and Princess Diana, but then to find out that they were fans of your music? Well, you know, you never know, do you? I mean, we've had people that uh, quite surprised me that they were, you know, had knowledge of the band and that were genuinely fans of the group. And, I mean, you know, it was the thrill of a lifetime to meet. Uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles certainly, um, but you know we've we've played for the Sultan of Brunei. He's a big fan. He well, well I don't know which one there is now, <laughs> but he's a big fan. We played to uh, quite a controversial figure, Imelda Marcos. We had dinner with her in the Philippines. Um, big fan. Uh, the president of Indonesia. Uh, I mean, we've met some dignitaries, that's for sure. And you know, I, I have a bunch of. Uh, my friends that play heavy metal and they're, they're big fans, but they say, don't tell anybody because <laughs> it'll, it'll ruin our, our street vibe, you know. So it's, it's great. I mean, I'm I'm very thankful for the, our career and the way that we've been able to touch 
so many people and, and have as many fans as we do. We continue to uh, perform well over 100 dates a year, still making great music. And the most recent recording, uh, The Lost in Love Experience, what was it like working with the Prague Symphony? Well, I wasn't uh, actually, Graham went to Prague to, to do that. That was a uh, decision we had to make about, well, a bunch of things. Um, but the, the, recorded, the recordings are fantastic. I mean, I would defy anybody to, to say any differently. Uh, and the fact that we got to, to release one of the recordings without uh, instrumental versions of the songs uh, is a true testament to how good the songs are because even without lyrics, obviously Graham's melodies are, are fantastic and the, the arrangements for the, uh, for the songs with the orchestra were unbelievable. Well, it's coming up on 47 years that you two have been working together. Uh, famously, uh, you, you say you've never had a fight or, or a major no. disagreement. How much of that is because you each have distinct roles within the band? I think that's a, probably 90% of it. You know, we don't, we don't step on each other's toes in any area. I mean, I, I know what, what my role is in Air Supply. It's to sing the songs that Graham writes. And, and I can't write songs. I don't play any instruments. Um, Graham doesn't want to be a, the lead singer, certainly. Um, and fortunately, from day one, we we found out just how much we had in common. As far and he's English, obviously, and I'm Australian, and you know, so we, we came from the, the same background, working class parents, and um, I shouldn't say obviously because people might not know, but we have the same sense of humour because Australia got all its humour from England, really. Um, we love the Beatles. We both saw them at, at uh, in England and Australia, respectively, in 64, so we had that. We loved them. Um, like the same bands, ELO, Eagles, Bee Gees, you know, just all tied together. And uh, there's just no reason for us to, to, to get into any, any kind of altercation, whether it's just... Well, certainly, I couldn't do it physically because he's six foot five. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's no, I mean, and once again, it, it all it gets back to, again, that we weren't, we weren't kids, you know, we don't, I mean, we both have egos that are pretty big because you have to, you have to have one to get on stage, but they don't clash, you know. I never said, you know, because I don't write songs, I want my, I want my songs on the record. He never said, uh, I want to, I want to be out front. You know, there's just, I mean, I can't think of any instance on any level that we've ever ever disagreed. I mean, we've had discussions about things, but certainly n n never anything close to an argument. That's, that's for sure. Air Supplies, Russell Hitchcock with us here on Downtown, the podcast. And uh, again, if you're uh, in the Northeast, well, wherever you are, check them out. They're on tour everywhere this late winter, spring. Air Supply is still going strong. Our thanks to Russell. Thanks to the great Felix Cavalieri. And thanks to you for being with us this week. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.